0: So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it out. Take it to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in there again for the foreseeable future. So go to Matthew 5. That's where we're going to be. I wanna recap a little bit of last week, and I have to really recap a little bit from last week because last week was so foundational. Last week, we introduced this sermon that is the thing that was, theologians arguably would say this is the most influential talk on Western civilization ever. And so, again, whether you're a faith person or a not-faith person, this thing has had more impact on your life than you even realize in this moment. So we're gonna lean into this and pour our hearts into it and be able to discover what Jesus is really after. So we came out right out of the gates saying that, The crowd that Jesus is talking to is maybe not who we would have thought it was. We talked about him in Matthew chapter four. Jesus goes and talks to this specific group of people. You remember what they're called? The Onoim. So the Onoim were this group of people that were defined kind of as the throwaway people. There's this sect of society. that were all the people who would either fall into the category of not the haves, but the have nots. The people that God would look at in, and in their world and their society and think, well, okay, well, God's not really pleased with them because they don't have the nice car or have the nice house or have the nice things, or because of this certain sin that they've done, they're not a good person. And this group of people in the chapter before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is healing them. Jesus is talking, to Jesus is paying attention to them and saying, no, actually, God does have favor on you. God does see you and I am that God and I'm seeing you and healing you. And this crowd follows him here to this hillside in Galilee and he begins to speak to him. And right out of the gate, he pulls back the pin on a grenade of God's grace and launches in and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now again, we gotta define some of those words. Blessed, last week we talked about this simple way we will define this and lean into this idea of blessed is God's face looking at us pleased. That's what it means to be blessed. To know that the Father God is looking at you pleased. And again, throughout the course of this, he says, blessed are those who blank. And in this first beatitude, right out of the gate, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We kind of talked about how that reality of being poor in spirit is this realization that we are spiritually bankrupt, that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves This realization that we used to have it all, but now we don't. This realization that we near dire need of Jesus, that our good works, our tithing, our perfect attendance at church, our ability to raise kids who have a lot of Bible memorized, that doesn't save us. That is by grace and grace alone that does. And so we talked about how We have to be poor in spirit, and I I think a a picture that I would give you on this is is this reality that um, Jesus is inviting us to climb this ladder of what the new life in him is gonna be like, and he says, in reality, poor in spirit is where that starts, and like any good ladder, its first rung must be very low to the ground. He says, if you're gonna climb this, if you're gonna enter into this life that I'm calling you to, you're gonna have to also get very low to the ground and be poor in spirit. He says, the blessing of the grace of Jesus is his love, and it reaches all the way down reaches all the way down to right where religion left you. Right where your attempt goes, poverty or spirit and his grace and his blessing reaches right there into it. We said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we define kingdom of heaven not as this place that we go when we die. He said, when we are at the place where we are poor in spirit, we realize that there is no way that I have any righteousness, any goodness, anything that is worthy to be paid attention to in my own, that Jesus and Jesus alone gives that, then what happens, and this is why we are blessed, is that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here's how we define kingdom of heaven. And I left you guys with a potentially no fun question to go home and ask. The kingdom of heaven is any place that where any place where what God wants done is actually being done. That's the kingdom of heaven. Any place where what God wants done is actually being done, okay? So that's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and I want you to understand about this, and this is the Beatitudes, you gotta get this. Um, each of these, these beatitudes, they're not just this random quote. It's not like the book of Proverbs where it's just a bunch of random phrases and you can just pick and pull and apply them randomly at however order you want to. These beatitudes flow in sequential order. So if you don't get to the place where you're humble enough to realize how broke and how poor you are spiritually and how in need of Jesus you are, how bankrupt you are and how in need you have to have him, you're never going to get to this second beatitude that we're going to uncover today. And so they flow. They go in sequential order. And they do this because these whole Beatitudes and this whole Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus is doing to say, all things are changing. I'm bringing a new normal on the scene because everything you taught about rabbis and teachers and religion, all of it revolves around what you do. He says, I'm bringing something totally different on the scene, I'm bringing a religion here, I'm bringing a relationship rather here that's more contingent on who you are than what you do. It's about being and not doing. And he also begins to flip all his head and we're gonna see this unpack today. He says, you thought the most important aspects of your life were how you felt and what you did. And Jesus says, your emotions are important. Your body is important. But the most important thing, the most important aspect about you is the reality that God places Holy Spirit inside of you. That's why right out of the gate, he says pour in spirit, not pour in emotions, not pure in heart, not swollen body or weak in body. He goes right after the most important, most critical thing, pour in spirit. It's his way of saying most important things, and the only hope of change is inside out. So that's that's five three. Let's um, let's read together five three Matthew five three and five four today. All right, um, it's going to be on the screen. If you don't have it in your Bible, let's all read this uh, out loud together. If you're at home, you know, read it too. If you're in a car, maybe don't look down or just read. Let us say it and you say it. <laughs> Matthew 5, 3, and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. All right, let's, let's go. Again, I told you guys we were gonna do this. We're gonna go kind of word by word in this. And again, man, I've had a few different conversations with people about this series and even this past message and everything else. And what I want you to know, you're gonna sense this This is a little bit of a shift in kind of how we've approached or maybe I've approached preaching to you. This is not like if there's anything that this is not gonna be, it's not gonna be self-help. We're gonna go word by word. Like at the end of the day, my hope is that you would go, if I call myself a Christian, I have to know what Jesus actually said. And if I call myself a Christian, I don't need to just stop at what he said. I gotta go to what he meant. And so we're gonna slow down and do our best to find out what he meant. And that's going to mean we're going to unpack words. That may, that's going to may, maybe mean that some of you need to go buy a journal or, or really learn how to take good notes on your phone because we're going to unpack what he meant. Because life is too short for you to live here on this earth with every breath that he gives you, not knowing what he actually meant by what he said. And so he says, "Blessed." The Greek word there for for blessed. I'm going to show it to you on screen. Uh, is makarios, makarios. And again, we kind of define this. It, it, it's translated more often than not in the Bible as blessed. Sometimes it's happy. But it's deeper than just happy. Again, emotions and happy. Like sometimes we get happy like when it's Moe's Monday and we get a burrito for $5 and we get happy about that. We just happen to actually go there on a Monday. It's a much deeper happy. He's talking about blessing. Again, we define that as God's face looking on us pleased. So he says, blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Now we're like, hold up. Mourn? Like funeral stuff? How is it blessed when people are dying? How is it blessed when people I love are not in my life anymore? So he said, blessed are those who mourn. The Greek word that Jesus uses here, or it's translated here, is pentheo. Have it up there on the screen, pentheo. And this, I want you to know that in the Bible, there are multiple words that were translated as mourn. This one here in Pantheo was the most intense, the most ferocious. It it was the one that if there was a scale of one to ten of like a little bit of mourning and a lot of bit of mourning, it was all the way past a lot of bit of mourning. And it's defined as this. It's manifested grief so severe, so severe that it takes possession of a person and cannot be hidden. And so as Jesus says this to the crowd that day, they would have visibly got this image in their mind of the wife at the funeral of her husband throwing herself on the casket, screaming, no, no, bring it back, this can't be real. That's what people would have saw, a grief that was so severe, it manifested head to toe and it could not be hidden. So, And again, put yourself, your, your butt is in the grass there on the hillside and Jesus shows up believe it or not, just said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't make any sense. And then says, happy are you when you're not happy. And happy are you when you're in tormenting grief. And people are going, what in the world? Now, I think there was some confusion in the crowd, and I think there's probably some confusion in this crowd, in the online crowd. Now, there are three types of mourning. There's three types of grief. And I want to hopefully lead us to which type Jesus is actually talking about here. First type is natural mourning, natural grief. And that's when you mourn over somebody you lost. And I don't think that that is what Jesus is actually talking about here. Think about it like this. And here's why I don't think Jesus is talking about bless her to you when you mourn. Now that's not to say that when you mourn, when you lose somebody you love, that God isn't there with you in it. That it isn't a blessing when you lose someone in this life to know that there's a potential of an afterlife. That's not what he's saying. I just don't think that's the point. See, think about these beatitudes like this. These beatitudes, what Jesus is talking about here is these are the qualities of a life of someone who's following me. These are qualities of life that you should be going after and pursuing. These are things that we should want. Like, we should want purity of heart. We should desire meekness. We should desire the poverty of spirit. We should actually desire to spiritually mourn. And what he's saying here to us is in these beatitudes... These are conditions of our heart that are so laden with blessing that we should do everything we can to get as much of them as possible. Now, in regards to natural mourning, that makes no sense. That would mean, oh, I, God, I want all of the blessing that comes from mourning, so kill everyone I love. Do you see how that doesn't make sense? And again, like I, I've spent this past week in, in, in commentaries and listening to other messages and in books, reading books about people like this. And, and often, 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 like everything is going like, God just cares for you when you lose someone. And yes, he does. But that's not what he's talking about here. Second type of mourning, sinful mourning, sinful mourning. This is an aching or a craving for something that God has not yet given us. Most of the time, Something that's outside of his will for us. Perfect example is this, is in the Bible, there's this this king, bad king, named King Ahab. Now King Ahab, he had a lot of stuff. Again, he's a king, he has a kingdom. One thing that he didn't have was this really apparently awesome vineyard that this guy Naboth had. So there's this cat Naboth, he's got a vineyard and apparently Ahab can see it from his window. He looks out, he sees Naboth's vineyard. He's like, that's the dopest vineyard, man. I just want that vineyard. Look at those grapes, man. And I like grapes. And he just wants this vineyard. He, he's aching physically for this vineyard so much so that he goes to Naboth. And he's like, listen, Naboth, name your price, man. I want that vineyard. And Naboth says, it'd be outside of God's will for my life to give you this vineyard. This is part of my family. I can't do that. And so Ahab goes back to his home, lays on the bed in the palace, and like a four-year-old little child starts pouting. I want that vineyard. Give me that vineyard. His wife hears him and says, shut up, I'll get it for you. And she goes and she kills Naboth and gives him the vineyard. That's sinful mourning. And again, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. There's a third type of mourning, spiritual mourning. Here's what that is. Spiritual mourning is sorrow over our sins against God. it's, It's mourning what sin has stolen from us in our relationship with God. And the reason that it can be blessed is because it produces repentance that leads to life. It produces repentance. It wakes us up to God's grace as it is available to us. Now, I say that and some of you right here are going like, what, like spiritual mourning I ain't never experienced that. Like this church is like deep. (laughs) He doesn't seem deep, but that's deep. Spiritual mourning, what in the world are we talking about here? Spiritual mourning, like crying about sin, crying over what sin has stolen. See, the reason I think this is such a foreign concept for us in our American Christianity is because we have watered down and reduced two key elements of the Christian life almost to the point where they're unrecognizable. And these two key elements are this, faith and repentance. See, in regards to faith, we've reduced faith to just belief. In in repentance of sin, we've reduced to just recognize the sin. Here's what I mean by that. First one, faith. Faith is supposed to be the thing that unites a person to Christ. It's been just reduced to I believe. It's been reduced to, I have made the mental ascent to recognize, th- like in my mind, Jesus is Christ. There is only one way to heaven and he's it. I am a sinner. So in my mind, I just believe all these things, I recognize Him. The problem with that is Satan and all of hell's demons believe the exact same thing. See, there's a difference between faith that just believes and there's a difference in a faith that believes and then surrenders to the will and the authority of what it then believes. See, we've watered down and reduced faith to just know these things. Know this set of things. Think these set of things. But simply believing certain things will not change your life. I'll say that again. That's some of the wake-up call you understand. Believing certain things about Jesus will not change your life. What changes your life? Correction. Who changes your life? The answer alone there is Christ. Christ is the only one that changed your life. And faith is what unites you to him so that change can happen. And so when Christ enters your life through faith, he comes not only in to forgive you, but to sanctify you. That's a big Christian word, to make you him. That's what sanctify means. Not like him, because we've tried that. Big fat fail, I'm gonna be like Jesus. No, Paul said, my life has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. That's what sanctify means, making something new. So when Christ comes on the scene, he wants to sanctify us, to change us into his image, to make us holy. Now, we talk about, and you hear this all the time in churches, man, God accepts you just as you are, just as you are, come to him, come to him just as you are. And look, yes, unequivocally, yes, just as you are. I talked about last week, the the, the teenager who just passed the third pregnancy test and needs to come to Jesus, the, the prodigal in the pit, elbows deep in pig pods, yes, just as you are. The problem is we leave us just as you are in our faith. And we fail to realize that Jesus accepts you just as you are, but does not want to leave you just as you are. And proof that you have been accepted just as you are is that you long to leave there. You long to be in some different place. You long to have his holiness manifest itself in your life. Second thing that we've watered down and reduced is repentance. And we've reduced repentance of sin to just merely recognizing our sin so we go to churches. and It's just like, you know, just, you know, realize, raise your hand that you're a sinner, pray a prayer, game on. And then from then on, anytime you sin, just say, God, I, I'm sorry I messed up. Whenever it comes to your mind, and again, maybe not in the moment, just whenever, whenever it comes to your mind, and then just admit it. But admitting sin is not repenting of sin. There's a, book, a Bible verse I want to show you guys, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. If you got a Bible, Isaiah's kind of right there in the middle. Uh, if you don't have time to get there, again, be on the screens. If you're watching online, it'll be right in my torso area, probably. Um, here it is, Isaiah 55, six and seven. This is what repentance actually is. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. And, and this, is the, this is the transition. Let the wicked forsake their ways, which means I was going this way, but I am forsaking that way, and I am turning to go this way. That is forsaking my ways. Not just saying, this way's wrong. I'm gonna keep going on it, though. This way's wrong. I'm just gonna pause here for a little while and rejuvenate and rest and meditate, and then I'm gonna try this way again. Like, that's been a lot of our lives. Oh, this way was wrong. God, sorry, this way was wrong. And then we stay on the wrong path. (laughs) He says, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. See, repentance, repentance is not just confession. Confession has to happen. Like you gotta confess to God and man. Confession is not the whole thing though. See, repentance is confession and then it's contrition. Contrition, it's this feeling of remorse. It's this feeling of penitent. It's going, I'm not just confessing this, I'm also contrite. My heart breaks because I've done something that breaks the heart of God, okay? So if we don't understand faith and that it is both belief and a surrender, and I would say that surrender, the first step in that surrender of faith for a person, I would say that first step is faith, And I would say step A, B, or step, you know, one B in that is baptism. Like you put your faith in Christ and you surrender into the waters of baptism. That's I accept you just as you are. But I'm not gonna leave you right there. And the first place I want to take you is to the water. To have that old life washed away and to be born up something new. And so if these are these two things. Some of you are like me, man, you may be hearing this going like, that's a lot, man. Like, okay, uh, maybe we haven't really understood what faith is. And maybe repentance isn't just going, I messed up here. I want to show you a picture, a story in God's word that I think will help you see with living color what spiritual mourning actually looks like, what it actually looks like to be at this place. Remember last week, I walked you through the story of the prodigal son. And I talked about how in the prodigal son's story, we see what being poor in spirit looks like. And we see the blessing that comes from that. We talked about this prodigal son who has this moment where he's wasted all the father's inheritance that he essentially said, "God, dad, you're dead to me. Give me what you have so that I can go and do life my way, which is all of our story. I wanna do it my way. God, you're dead to me. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Takes everything that God has given him, finds himself broken and poor with nothing left to eat and no job to have except the job that would have been absolutely asinine for a Jewish boy to be doing, feeding pigs who were ceremonially unclean, like it's the worst possible job he could ever have. And there he is, longing not to eat just pigs, but to eat what pigs eat. And there in this moment, he comes to his senses. And this is where poor in spirit happens. Poor in spirit happens while he has pig mud up to pig slop up to his arms while he's realizing that this is what I have found myself in. This is where my way has gotten me. And the poverty in spirit was that thing in him that said, I have got to go home. I have sinned against my father and I have sinned against heaven. Now, that Poor in spirit—that's beatitude one. Poor in spirit, and we talked about how last week we think that when the prodigal became blessed was when he got back on the dance floor and he's got a ring on, he's got the coat on, fat and calf is cooking. We think that that's blessed moment, blessed moment. According to Jesus, is elbow deep in pig pots. I want to show you where blessed are those who mourn is at, because it's also in this story. If you got a Bible, I would invite you to go to Luke fifteen. This is where we see the story of the Prodigal Son. Last week I told you, and this week I want to show you, just to be able to like let you put eyes on it. It's not going to be on the screen. This is why you guys, like, we're going to be in this whole thing for a while. Start bringing your Bible. Uh, first service, they did really good at this. Second service, get your act together. Um, just kidding. I love you. Bring your Bible. Um, we're going to be in here a while, which you should be like glad. Like we're reading our Bible at church. What else would you expect? Um, so Luke fifteen seventeen through twenty. I love this first line, man. I gotta tell you some stuff on here too. Um, First line, verse 17. Again, he's wasted everything. He's there in the pigs. It says, when he came to his senses. Hold up, stop, wait a minute. When he came to his what? When he came to his senses. Now, here's what I want you to understand about this and understand about the Beatitudes. And it's fascinating here. And this is why I'm beginning to find out as I study this on my own. is like Jesus' greatest sermon ever really runs parallel to Jesus' greatest story ever in the prodigal son. So it says he came to his senses. And what I was realizing is when you think about all the Beatitudes, if you read through that list, what you realize is the reality is everyone is poor in spirit. Everyone should be spiritually mourning. Everyone is actually meek. Everyone is actually hungering and thirsting. Everyone is eff- essentially experiencing these Beatitudes. The problem is all those people who are weak, who are hungering, and thirsting, and who are mourning And what, all the rest of the list, they're not blessed because they don't sense it. They don't sense that they're poor. They don't sense that they're mourning. They don't sense that their hunger and thirst that they've been trying to figure out with drugs, alcohol, and sex is actually a hunger and thirst for their father God. They don't sense it that way. And look at this story. When the prodigal came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That verse right there is poor in spirit. That's Beatitude one, right there. He's saying, I I don't have anything else. Look at what he ties it to. He's saying, my father's hired servants have more than I do. I don't have anything. I am poor. I am broke. I don't have even enough food to eat on my own. I'm wanting to eat pig pods. That is poor in spirit. And he says, I've sinned against my father. Spirit is poor. Now I, see, I want you to see in verse 19, this is what spiritual mourning looks like. I love how we are able to see this in the story. He says, I am no longer Worthy to be called your son. Mourning. You know, mourning is all about what you've lost. You you don't mourn over getting something. You don't mourn, oh gosh, I got, you know, a great parking spot. Oh, tears. You only mourn when you lose something. And you see this here in the story. He's mourning over something he lost. And to this story and to our lives, there is nothing that you can lose that is a greater loss than losing the reality to be called a son of God to be called a daughter of God. And so here in the story again, pick out the parallel, see what's happening here. He is saying, I have lost the most important, most valuable aspect of my life, sonship, a place in my father's house. And he knows that it's his sin that caused him to lose that. He says, I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've lost what my identity should have been. And so he says, make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to the Father. Now, I love what's going on here. So Jesus says this. He says, blessed are those who mourn. And hopefully we begin to get an idea of what spiritual mourning looks like. But now I want to turn that corner and go, okay, what's on the table? What's, what's available to those who mourn? And what is Jesus in this beatitude thing promising to those who through the pathway of beatitude one, their poverty of spirit, their admittance that I am a sinner in need of a savior, I am spiritually bankrupt, their admittance of that, and then go, okay, I realize that this is what I am, and now I'm mourning over what I am. I'm weeping over what I've lost. What's on the table for those people? Jesus says, they shall be comforted, comforted. Now, we can hear that and go, they get a beanbag chair, like what, what are we after here? Like comforted, like they just get a, they get a hug, Jesus hug. Like what are we after here? What does that mean? When I'm spiritually broken enough, when I begin to weep over my sin, how, how, how does this comfort happen? The Greek word that I wanna show you here for comforted is the word parakaleo, parakaleo. This word caused me a lot of consternation this week. I don't get this word, and the reason I pull out these words and stuff to you is because I believe Jesus picked every single word of these words by heart, by, for a reason, for us to understand and to get what they mean. And, and again, we can hear, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. And we just go, okay, Jesus is gonna help me when my parents die. There's so much more. And again, it's not about physical. It's about this eternal. It's not about how we feel. It's not about how we think. It's about what's going on in our eternal spirit in relation to an eternal God. And so he says, blessed are those who mourn spiritually for they will be comforted. Now this comfort. This word parakaleo is used 110 times in the New Testament. 110 times in the New Testament. 91 of those times when it's translated, it's not translated as comforted. 91 of the 110 times that parakaleo is translated, it's translated with these words. Words are some frame or some, some form of beg, plead, encourage, urge. So pericleo, more often than not, when it's translated from the Greek into the English, the Bible was originally written kind of in this Greek language, we translate it into English. That's how we got what we got. More often than not, 91 times, to be exact, it's translated, urge, plead, encourage. Now you read this and you go, okay, well why, if the majority of time is translated that, why doesn't this verse read, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be encouraged. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be begged or they will be pleaded with. And that's why I read that and I go, God, what, are you, what, what does this mean? What are you after here? Now, 19 times, again, it's translated 110 times. 91 times, begged, urged, pleaded. 19 times is translated some form of the word comfort. Now, stick with me here because I have a point to all of this. 19 times is translated as comfort. Now, there's probably some sort of significance between 19 and 91 and them being opposites of each other, but I'm not gonna be one of those weird preachers who starts drawing numbers and lines and stuff and trying to predict when the end times are coming. Um, 91, encourage, plead, 19, comfort. Now, whoever, again, I think by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, translated this verse for us here in English, these guys decided to translate it as comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I had no idea what to do with this, how to communicate this to you, of what this actually means. That there is this, In this word, parakaleo, there is this calling out and pleading and begging, but at the same time, there's this comfort. And I had no idea of like, God, is it one or the other? Is this a bad translation and a different, should be this translation? God, what's going on here? I've been praying and trying to figure out how to communicate this to you. And up until this morning, I had no idea how I was going to do that. And up until this morning, I'm just gonna confess to you, I felt like a big giant hypocrite trying to preach this sermon to you where it lands with me asking you the question, when was the last time you wept over your sin? And I felt like a big giant hypocrite because I, up until this point, don't remember that time. But that changed this morning. I think there's an epiphany that I found in this text and I wanna show it to you. I don't think it's an either or. I don't think is, is this parakaleo word, does this mean encourage or does this mean comfort? Does this mean beg or does this mean comfort? What does it mean? I think it's both. And see, I found it this morning. Again, when you look at the story of the prodigal son, he gets up. He, he realizes his poverty in spirit. He realizes and begins to mourn what he's lost. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. I only am a servant, a slave now. I'm going back to the father. And we read, this, we read the story of the prodigal son and you see what happens. He gets up and he comes home. The father is up on the porch. He sees him way off. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch of our imagination in this text to think that the father just picks up his, his, his robe, ties it around his waist, and just runs, keeps his mouth shut, and goes to his child and then hugs him. Like, I, I'm just not willing to believe that the father doesn't say something on the way. And I think what's happening here is pericoleo, pleading and begging that leads to comfort. Picture the father, there on the porch, looking the same way he does every evening, looking out and sees him. And Pericleo happens. He begins to beg and plead, come on, son! Come on, boy! Yes, yes, come on! You can do this, come on! And he picks, up his, he picks up his robe, he ties that stuff up and he begins to go, he begins to go to his son and I believe the whole entire way that he as the loving father is going after the son, he is pleading, he is begging, don't stop son, don't stop, come on boy, come on, let's go! And then, comfort happens as he embraces his son, that's paracleo. it's begging and pleading to come into the comfort of the father. And my heart broke when I heard the Father begging and pleading for me by name. Trent, come on, son. Trent, come on. Don't stop. Yeah, like, yeah, come on. Don't let that stop you, son. Don't let that stop you, son. Trent, come on. Get up. Come on. You got to hear him saying your name, by name, comforting you. Calling you out, pleading with, begging you, don't stop. Come on. And so I found myself this morning, I wish I could have typed it out to put it on a screen to show you, but I found myself, given what I hope is a Holy Spirit honoring paraphrase to this text that I think paints it in the light that I believe Jesus wants us to see it in. Blessed are those so stricken with sorrow over their sin they will hear their father begging and pleading with them to come to his comfort. Blessed are those so stricken with sorrow over their sin, they will hear the father begging and pleading with them to his comfort. Now again, all of this, all of this is contingent on whether you sense it or not. And I can't do that to you. I can't do that for you. Only... And that's what I've been praying all day. Only the Holy Spirit can awaken your senses to hear that. Right now, for every single person in this room, you know your name. Right now, for every single person in this room, every single person watching online, there is a Father who is pericaleo to you right now, who is calling you out by name. It is all contingent on whether or not you sense it in this moment. He's calling you out by name. Come on, come on, get out of that. That's an empty relationship. That's a broken vessel. You don't need to drink out of there. That well has already run dry. Get out of that. Get out of that relationship. Get out of that job. Take this promotion. Talk, talk to them. Get into my word. Start volunteering. Give a little bit. Do like encouraging, calling us out by name into these things and saying, I'm gonna embrace you. I'm right there. I'm right there. Realize that you're poor. Realize that you're broken. And hear me calling you out. I think the apostle Paul, he did a beautiful, amazing job of showing what this repentance is. This poverty in spirit, this 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 mourning over our sin, this sorrow that should be a head to toe, manifesting in every aspect of our life, that it can't be hidden kind of thing. I think he showed us in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 10. It's going to be up here. I want you to read it says, even if I cause you sorrow by my letter. Now, Paul's writing to church in Corinth. Again, I've told you this a little bit. Church of Corinth was kind of like, a, you know anything goes, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was all over the place in Corinth. And so Paul writes to them and he's calling them out on their sins. Like He's pulling no punches about you've been, dudes been sleeping with dudes. All this crazy stuff's been going on. He just lays it all out there. Doesn't pull any punches. Doesn't blur anything out. Doesn't write anything in invisible ink so only the leaders can read it and then tell everybody else. Like Just lays it all out there. Say, hey, read this publicly. I want everybody to know. I may not call everybody out by name, but I know what's really going on there. Word gets out. So Paul, he writes them in in 2 Corinthians, kind of after he roasts them over the coals, and he says, hey, even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet I know that I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, This is spiritual weeping. Sorrow that leads to repentance. That's how you know whether or not it's from God or it's from Satan. It leads to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. What? That doesn't match what Joel told me. That doesn't match what I heard on TV preacher. Sorrow? What? I should should actually be sorrowful? And hold up. God would actually, this God out there, would actually intend my sorrow. Sorrow. This is again, this is Jesus saying, here's the new normal. If you're gonna follow me, one of your primary emotions may be sorrow. And again, like what do we do with that? This is his thing. This is what he lays out. Blessed are those who are sorrowful, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are so in tune with how their sin separates them from me, that they weep over it. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we're not harmed in any way by us. Verse 10, key verse here. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow, death. Worldly sorrow, death. Worldly sorrow is bummed out that it got busted. Godly sorrow goes, I am busted, broken, And I can't help but weep. And here's how you know in sins in your own life whether or not you're experiencing worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. Whether or not you are led to a place where you are hopeful. That's the difference. Whether or not your sorrow leaves you hopeful. That's how you know whether or not you have godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. That's where you know you're grieving over your sin in a way that's just kind of a worldly way or it's the godly way. Think about it like this. There are these two guys. One's named Judas Iscariot. One's name is Peter. Now, Judas Iscariot, he was one of Jesus' closest confidants. He handled the money. He was kind of the treasurer of the tribe of you know, Jesus' disciples. He's doing his thing. Eventually, he gets to this place where, real, where he realizes Jesus isn't going to do this Messiah thing the way he thinks he should do this Messiah thing. And so he says, it'd be better for me than stick around with this guy. I'd rather just earn just a little bit of money and just call it a day. I see how this train's going to end. It's not going to go pretty for him. I'd rather make a little bit of coin on the side and speed this thing up. He goes and trades 30 coins of silver for the life of his savior. Now, he comes to a place where eventually he is remorseful of that. He is in pain over that. He is in deep sorrow and agony of what he has lost in the friend of Jesus, in the friend of the sinners that he is. He maybe recalls back to this moment where he looked eye to eye with this guy as he is washing his feet and he remembers, how dare I give up his life? He laid down his life for me. And we see that this worldly sorrow that Judas had led him to death. The Bible recounts that he hangs himself on a field on the outskirts of town. Then you see this guy, Peter. Now, Peter, in a very similar fashion, it didn't become a financial gain for him. It was really not about Peter gaining money. It was about Peter not losing his life. Peter goes, uh, I don't know him. And then a middle school girl comes up, and she goes, you kind of sound like one of his guys. And he goes, I don't know him. And then another person comes up, and he essentially says, GD, I don't know him. Is it him swearing to God that he doesn't know him. The equivalent. Denies him three times, rooster crows. Peter feels that same shame. Same shame that you felt, I felt, we felt. He feels it. Of denying Jesus. And in Peter's sorrow, he stuck around. And Peter's sorrow, he continued to be with the guys. And Peter's sorrow, he recognizes his savior on the shore cooking breakfast. He hops out of his boat takes off his, or puts on clothes, which we think that doesn't make sense. Why would you put clothes on to go swim to the shore? Well, he was still ashamed, and so he's covering, he's still covering himself up. He still thinks he has to do that with Jesus. He gets all the way to the shore. And this loving Savior begins to reinstate him. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? And then Peter gets upset. Lord, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. And he reinstates Peter. And here in the contrast between these two guys, here's what I want you to understand. Satan and the Holy Spirit have one thing in common. Both Satan and the Holy Spirit, their whole goal is to lead you to the end of yourself. Satan's goal, it leads you to the end of yourself. Holy Spirit's goal, to lead you to the end of yourself. Satan wants to do it to lead you to the end of yourself and you to get there without Jesus. And once you find the end of yourself, whether that's a bullet in the mouth, whether that's an overdose, whether that's you killing yourself slowly through cirrhosis of the litter because you're trying to just drink yourself in, whether that's you in relationship after relationship after relationship, whatever it means. He wants you to go to the end of yourself and you not be there at the end with Jesus. That's worldly sorrow because then you spend an eternity separated from God. You spend an eternity in hell. He wants to lead you to the end of yourself. Holy Spirit, same goal. Wants to lead you to the end of yourself. The difference is because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus, when you get to the end of yourself, then sitting there waiting on you is Jesus, praise God. You get to the end of yourself and you go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, There is an up from here. I am hopeless and he is hope. Not just hope for me, but like he is hope. He leads you to the end of yourself and he leads you right to Jesus. He leads you to Jesus and he invites you in your mourning and in your poverty to now accept all that Jesus died to give you. We see what that is. One of my absolute favorite passages in the entire world, entire Bible, Isaiah 53, three through five. This, this verse right here, this answers the question of who in the world can comfort somebody like us when we feel the weight of our sin? Who can do that? Only somebody who was, verse three, despised and rejected by men. You wanna talk about sorrow? This Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was one who men hid their faces from. He was despised and he was esteemed not. And surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And it is with his wounds that we are healed. See, see, Jesus never mourned over sin that were his. But unlike you, like you only ever have to feel the full blade and feel the full weight of your own sin. The difference between you and Jesus is he felt everyone's. Everyone past, everyone in that moment, and everyone future. He was the man of sorrows, stricken. He was the man who bore our griefs. And so our only hope in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our poverty, in the midst of our mourning over what sin has stolen from us is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, by what you did on the cross, now all of what was stolen can now be repaid. And that's that's, that's what leads us to mourn. See, every sin steals something from you. Every sin you commit. Seal something from you. For me in my life, the the place that when I think about the most mourning I ever experienced in my life, like the heaviest, most weeping over like natural mourning was when my father was shot and killed. And I love this verse because it's given me so much hope that now I can actually extend forgiveness because what I'm angry at right now is not the fact that I lost my dad. What I'm angry at now is what sin stole. What sin robbed And so I don't have to get mad at the gunman. I can get mad at sin and what sin stole. And I can weep over a world where people do senseless, crazy things. I can weep over a world where where people don't know what it's like to have people to love them and care for them. I can weep over a world where people think it'd be better off if I just ended this child that's in my womb's life. It'd be better off if I just walked out on this family. It'd be better off if I just checked out and put to the side all these commitments. We begin to be a church that now weeps over what sin is stealing from us and I told you I was going here, my question to you is when was the last time you wept over what sin has stolen from you? When was the last time your heart was tender enough to go there? I can tell you, because it didn't happen to me. Like in <laughs> it's confession time. Um, again, I, I hate being a hypocrite. And I know I am at times. And I, and I, I dreaded Asking you that question, not knowing when my last time was. God, I, wanna, I can't lead you somewhere I'm not at. I can't lead you somewhere I've not been. But what took me there this morning, I didn't just like God. What took me there this morning was not, and I did this, like the, I did the list. God, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, you tell me to name my blessings one by one, I'm going to name my sins one by one. I put the list down. It wasn't pretty, and I hid it afterwards. It's gone. I don't want anybody to find it. That didn't make me cry. That didn't break my heart. I mean, it broke my heart, but it didn't lead me to the place where I'm mourning, where like what we defined as mourning, this place where it is a manifest, visible to the people on the outside weeping. I didn't do it. What did it was pericaleo. What did it was in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my mistakes, hearing the voice of the Father going, Trent, that's not enough to make me stop running after you. What did it was was hearing the voice of God begging me, put it down, son. Leave it alone, son. That's mine to carry, son. You don't have to wear that, son. You're wanting something that, you're wanting them to give you something they never could, son. You're wanting approval that I can only give you, son. Come on me comfort you it's here it's in my arms it's with me it's not with them it's with me you can't do this son come on son that's what broke me i'm praying that's what breaks you when you realize that a loving caring willing to do anything even give his own son so that you can hear him call you by name encouraging you saying weep mourn but know that as you mourn what sin may have stolen from us, this is, man, um, this is what's so beautiful about the gospel is we weep over what we think sin has stolen. And it has stolen stuff in our life. Man, some of you have years that the locusts have eaten from your life. Years of addiction, years of pain, years of trying to you know, fix a father wound with accomplishments or years of trying to you know, hide an abuse over here and not say anything about it. You have years where you've been trying to do that and you've been living that cycle of have a few good weeks and then crash and have a few good weeks and then crash. And you've lived that cycle enough. But here's the deal. This was so beautiful about the gospel. Sin has stolen stuff from you in this life. But wait, there's more. So he says, through this faith, through you admitting, through this, you enter by the power of the Holy Spirit into ultimate comfort. In every year that the locust ate of your life will be repaid in eternity. Everything that you left, everything that you surrendered, everything that had the pain and that you mourned, and all those years without a father, and those years with abuse, and those years with that secret hidden sin, all those years of your ano, life are all gonna be repaid. When you enter the kingdom, and you realize, maybe for the very first time, You're not a throwaway people. You're not a have not. You have the love and the affection of the Father, and you're with Him. Amen. (laughs) Praise you, God, for that. So, we're going to celebrate communion together. And this is our way of remembering the price that Jesus paid for our lives. This is our way of recalling what has been done. And, And here's what I love what cannot be undone. My prayer is that you come to him today, poor in spirit, you mourn over your sin. And that today as you leave, whether it be in communion here or in the quiet confessions of your own home, you find a place to let him break you down. You find a, a place to, to let him lead you to godly grief that leads to repentance, and leads to life. Let's pray. Jesus, do in the heart's of your people, the things that only you can do. Your word has been preached. Your gospel has been made clear. Draw us to you. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to life change. I pray that hear you call them by name, Pericaleo, begging to be comforted. Begging to be comforted. In your name.